Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste World podcast. I'm your host, Antoine Walter, and in today's episode, I'm thrilled to welcome Marc Barra as my guest. Marc is an urban ecologist specializing in nature-based solutions at the Paris Agency for Biodiversity, in charge of the H2020 Regreen project, and he'll tell us much more about Regreen in just a minute. Indeed, you may have missed it the last time you visited Oros, Beijing, Shanghai, or Paris, But those are not just cities, but also urban living labs. While Mark will explain to us what that exactly means, I can already tell you that it has a lot to do with the experimentation, assessment and uptake of nature-based solutions. Indeed, there's a lot of technology in nature, so beyond the fuzzy image of a kind of hippie science, you'll see that ecological engineering may progressively replace and enhance traditional hard engineering approaches. If you're noticing a pattern with last week's interview with James Murray from the Glasgow City Council, that's absolutely on purpose. We're in the middle of a trilogy on blue-green solutions that will close next week with Professor Silvana Di Sabatino from the University of Bologna to discuss the Operandum project. I'll have the pleasure to host James, Mark and Silvana in a dedicated session of the United Nations Innovate for Cities conference. If you're curious, you'll find all the information in the show notes. If you're new to this podcast, consider subscribing. And if you like what you hear, please subscribe your friends and share that episode with a couple of colleagues. I'll see you on the other side. You're listening to Don't Waste Water, the podcast that helps water professionals to improve their wastewater treatment, optimize their operation costs, and keep up with the latest market trends. This podcast is brought to you by GF Piping Systems. As a leading supplier of piping systems made of plastics and metal, GF Piping Systems is the global expert for the safe and reliable transportation of water, chemicals, and gas. For more information, visit gfps.com. Hi, Mark. Welcome to the show. Hi. So we have a tradition with those episode, which is to open with a postcard. I'll let you decide where you're sending your podcast from because you're not directly within Paris, you're next to Paris. So what can you tell us about your place or Paris that I would ignore by now? Yes, I, I live in a city called Pantin, which is a, a funny name of city in, in French. And it's just uh, nearby Paris. It, it's this part that we call the first crown of Paris, which has been uh, urbanized in the, in the last year. And that's a nice city to live in where there's a lot going on on, uh, on social uh, events, uh, uh, a lot of animation, a great atmosphere. That's also a, a picture of how Paris is uh, concentrating and urbanize in, in that place. I think we may come back to this small crown at some point in the discussion because I've seen that you, you had some activities around that, but now I'm a bit spoiling what we might be discussing in the deep dive. Right before you're French, I'm French, uh, your job title is Ecologue in French, which I tried to translate. And uh, in English, I could have ecologist or environmentalist. What would be your definition? Actually, I always struggle to translate it in English. That's true. So usually I say that I'm an ecologist or an ecology scientist. Maybe to be more precise, I say that I'm an urban ecologist and I study urban ecology, which is the study of urban ecosystems. So my work actually uh, on a daily basis is to produce knowledge and uh, science-based evidence and expertise 
on how to integrate nature-based solutions in, in cities. So nature-based solutions is going to be our deep dive. And I was just wondering, right before we dive into it, you know, we are part of a series of a trilogy of three interviews. And I was discussing that with James Murray. And uh, we were opposing hard engineering with nature-based solutions, not opposing in the fight sense of the name, but still opposing. And you know, I'm a hydraulic engineer, so I'm a bit wondering because I may be on the hard engineering side. So what's your take here? Is it really one against the other? Do both work together or is one supposed to replace the other on the long run? <sighs> That's a good question. Yeah, actually, we could feel that there is like uh, this fight uh, between uh, ecologists and hard engineering, well, soft engineering and hard engineering. Actually, in the reality, I think it's more a combination of nature. And w when we talk about nature-based solution, it's often a combination of civil engineering and soft ecological engineering. And uh, I work a lot with engineers and hydraulic engineers, and I like them. <laughs> I think it's a fight actually within the hard engineering profession at the moment. What's happening with ecology is that uh, some hydraulic engineers are turning back actually to a century of uh, hygienic ideology where nature was sent outside the city when rivers were dive on the ground and um, all, all the urban rivers were channeled and buried and, and sanitized. So I think that some engineers have still this excessive confidence in technology and control of nature, whereas some other now are kind of making a U-turn from what they learned at school. Mentality are changing, and now they understand that the use of infrastructure can be green and that we can use plants and soils and green spaces for stormwater management, uh, flooding management, and that this need is increasingly in cities. So actually, I would say that uh, ecologists and classic engineers or hydraulic engineers are partnering at the moment, but there are some conflicts within the profession of uh, engineers at the moment. I can relate to that. I can really relate to that. And, and that's a discussion we had regularly on that microphone, because for sure, it's hard to change what you've been doing for decades, especially when from your point of view, it's just fine. I mean, you change something which is broken. It's harder to change something that appears to work. But we'll dive a bit deeper into this appear to work in, in, in a second. You mentioned this regreening, which offers me a very smooth transition towards regreen, which is the program which is going to be at the center of our discussion today. Can you define it? What is regreen? Regreen is a, is a four-year project, an H2020 program on nature-based solution in urban areas. And it's, um, it's a project involving uh, almost 20 partners from uh, Europe and from China. And uh, well, the, the overall goal of this project is to show that nature-based solution can solve many urban issues and sometimes replace uh, gray infrastructure to ensure climate change adaptation and also biodiversity recovery in cities. There's a lot going on in this regreen project through the, the different work packages. There's a work packages that deals with children and youth experience and awareness of nature-based solution. There's also people working on uh, quantifying and modeling ecosystem services and challenges on the different ULLs. 
monitoring values also about nature-based solution and, and nature in the city. Another work package working on the systems of governance and planning and how we mainstream nature-based solution into this uh, governance. And of course, a lot going on about uh, exchange of knowledge, about experience, about training in the different urban living lab. And what we call an urban living lab is a, usually a city or a province where all these work packages uh, apply and where we do demonstrators as well of uh, the project. So we are three in, in Europe, Orus in, in Denmark, which is a medium-sized city, uh, Velika Gorica in Croatia, which is a small city near, near Zagreb, and the Paris region, which is a combination of cities. It's the province scale and it's the larger ULL in the project. And so we have different types of city where we can show different things and different approach about, uh, about nature-based solution. And of course, there is also the Chinese partner with different ULLs like uh, Beijing, Shanghai and Ningbo which are quite large cities. So the challenge are not uh, exactly the same, but that's uh, always interesting to look at uh, the differences between those uh, continents in terms of uh, nature-based solution approach. How did it happen that you were working with China? What was the, the rationale behind that? Well, actually, that's something that is uh, asked by the European Commission to find an international partner outside of uh, of Europe. And I think the researchers that we are working with have a very good relation with uh, research in ecology in China and research in forestry. So that made sense from the from the beginning uh, we, to work with those people, and there are very good geomaticians and uh, and people working in mapping that help us to do some work packages. And there's also, I think, in China, nature-based solution are, are always in very large projects uh, with a lot of intensity in 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 the project. So that's also for us another way to see how we could implement nature-based solution on a big surface. We've been discussing on that microphone with Michael Stanley-Gallisdorfer around the, the sponge cities in China, which is a really large-scale application of somehow nature-based solution. It's not only nature-based solution, but that's a broad part of it. So if you're interested to dive a bit deeper into that, I'd recommend you that specific discussion. Um, my question would be, what do you want to demonstrate with Regreen? Is it that nature-based solution work? Is it to further develop them or is it to measure what they can do so that you have a hardcore proof that would then be useful for future developments? Mm, I think we want all of this, <laughs> actually. And that's why we took part in this project. Uh, of course, I hope that the, um, the production phase and uh, the different uh, technical reports and tools and products uh, will provide us with more um, evidence, more arguments about the efficiency of nature-based solutions and help us to visualize also, because there's a lot of mapping on this project, so help us to visualize where we can implement nature-based solution in, in the Paris region. But we also look forward of seeing the, the communication power of this kind of uh, European project and hope that uh, Regreen will uh, will highlight what we've been doing in the Paris region, but also uh, help us to convince and prove that NBS are efficient to our local government. And that's one of the role of this European project is to give uh, legitimacy to our work. 
apart from Regreen, we're also involved in another NBS project called Artisan, which is a Life Plus project uh, uh, hosted by the French National Office of, uh, of Biodiversity. And so all these European projects are actually very powerful to convince the local government. It's not just our small agency that are working on NBS, it's a whole bunch of researchers at the European and international level, uh, so it's more credible. Let's focus on, on one of your urban living labs with the Paris region. You said that you are trying to monitor and to prove what you've been doing. So it sounds like something which happened already in the past. And in the re-green name, there's this notion of green again. So I'm just wondering, where are you in that scale? Is it something that's already well advanced and uh, you're fine-tuning and putting the cherry on the cake? Or are you really on the beginning of that route and there's still a lot of concrete to replace probably with some blue-green infrastructure? Um, it's difficult to answer. Uh, I would say that yeah, yeah, it depends of the the people you are talking to. Of course, for some people, uh, they've never heard about nature-based solutions, so it's quite a new concept. For others, they have already worked and implement uh, nature-based solution. But about the Paris region, I think we are at the same level than other big metropolitan areas, meaning that uh, uh, there's a lot of urbanization, ecology issues are popping at that time, and they're really integrating the political debate. However, I, I would say that in the Paris region, regarding the different scale, I can say that 25 years ago, the French government was approving a master plan for the Paris region. And at that time, it was really dominated by gray infrastructure. And the, the main objective was to develop buildings, power lines, roads, railways, sewage plants. But in 2013, there was this first regional ecological plan that drew the new green and blue pathway, what we call yeah, the protection and the restoration of reservoirs of biodiversity interconnected by corridors, this green and blue pathway, actually, that was the, the first time on a fairly detailed scale that we have this picture of a green and blue grid that was integrated in, in this master plan. So I think it's uh, we are moving forward. Actually, we still have to uh, confirm that ambition on the field, actually. Then when we look at the cities level within the Paris region, I think it's going even quicker about nature-based solution. A lot of municipalities have realized uh, some nice project of uh, ecosystem protection or ecosystem restoration using their own power at the city level, using their own planning documents. Last week, uh, we spent three days uh, visiting some uh, nature-based solution project in uh, in Paris area with the, the Regreen team. And uh, we went, for example, in the northern part of Paris in a city called Epinay-sur-Seine, where the municipality has turned uh, a former brownfield of uh, 1.5 hectares into an ecological reserve, which is made of, uh, of nature, of course, but uh, there is this um, cooling effect objective behind. There's also this wilderness objective of biodiversity. And uh, that, that's really cool to protect this kind of ecosystem when we know the strong competition that there is in this kind of place in the, in the Paris area. We also went to another place called Gonesse and another city called uh, Sarcelles, 
where we, vi we visited a river restoration project. And uh, there's a lot going on actually in, uh, in the Paris area about river restoration because there are incentives about the, the water agency. We also visited in, in Gonesse a flood expansion area. That's a 12 hectare uh, wetland that has been created in order to, to mitigate the flood risk. And actually the houses that were nearby this, this place used to be flooded every year. And this wetland now uh, in, ensures the, the mitigation of the, of the flood, but it's also a place where biodiversity can thrive and also uh, a new green space for people that can go there walking and running and etc. So actually at the, yeah, at the city level, I think uh, um, more and more projects of nature-based solutions are, are implemented and that, that's a good news. Okay, there's a lot to unpack in what you just said. Let me try to start from what you said some minutes ago about Paris being somehow in the average of cities. I had that discussion on that microphone with uh, Claudia Winkler and Alice Schmidt. They, they wrote a book called The Sustainability Puzzle. And in their book, they were giving some Paris example and they were citing Anne Hidalgo as a, a political leader which was having an impact. I'm not taking that discussion on the political level. That's not my aim. It's just, I'm wondering, when you're inside France, which I, I am sometimes, you hear a bit of what you were saying, that Paris is probably average and, uh, and that there is a lot of communication and maybe not always the same effects in real life. But from a foreign perspective, quite often Paris is seen as still a lighthouse. I mean, there's the Paris Treaty and, and there's many things happening in that field, or at least communicating that field around Paris. So do you stand your point? Is, uh, is Paris average, or would you say that there's a bit more meat on that bone? Yeah, I would keep on, on thinking that we are still average comparing to other places. But what you're saying, I hear it a lot from my friends that live abroad or from other researchers that, that live abroad. And, and they say that they, they have this feeling that uh, uh, some political and elected representatives such as Anne Hidalgo in, in Paris are doing very great and that we talk about greening uh, every day on the, on, on the news. And that, that's actually true. And I think Anne Hidalgo and, and other politicians have done a lot to talk about ecology on their program, to set some objectives, even if not all of them are reachable, but to set some objective about greening the city. And, and that's, I would say, that's part of the job actually, if politicians don't take this subject, don't embrace this subject and don't set objective, we'll never go forward, actually. So we need that the politician take this step and then all the, the services will follow. Actually, and that's, that's the most difficult because I know the technician of this, the city of Paris, for example, and from other cities, and it's really hard for them when there is a political decision <laughs> to follow <laughs> because you have to get organized, uh, you have to change the way you work, you have to find uh, the budget for that. Uh, so sometimes the political decision is quicker uh, than when, what you can uh, actually realize on the, on the field. But it helps, and, uh, and I'm really happy that, that politicians are, are changing the way they see uh, an ecological strategy. You mentioned that project you visited, which has this cooling effect, one of the advantages being that cooling effect. Is that the first thing you try to overcome with nature-based solution, this, this, this urban heat? You mean in, in the Paris area? 
Yeah, if you have to look at, at the Paris area, what, what is the number one threat? Is it that urban heat? And what would be the, the other ones? Well, actually, there are many threats and many challenges about uh, about climate change at the same time in the Paris region. It depends where you look at. If you look at the very dense urban area and uh, and the Paris city center, for example, of course, that uh, urban heat island is one of the main challenge. Actually, according to climate scenarios, there will be sharp increase in temperature and sharp increase in the occurrence of heat waves uh, by the end of the century. We talk about an increase of two to four uh, degrees in Paris cities. That means more people affected by, uh, by, by heat, actually. And uh, what is interesting is that uh, there are strong territorial contrasts between Paris and the inner suburbs and the countryside. Mm-hmm. Uh, Météo France, uh, which is the, the reference uh, in climatology, uh, says that there's been in 2003, uh, during the heat waves, there's been between 8 and 10 degrees difference between Paris and the wow. countryside. So that's huge and uh, that's actually a real challenge. But if you look at other parts of uh, the Paris area, the second challenge is, of course, water. And also the climate scenarios say that uh, there will be an, incre- an increase in, in, in flooding and in runoff, as well as shortage in water supply in other parts of the, uh, of the years. Even with a little annual change in precipitation, but stronger seasonal contrast. We have already experienced some flooding, big flooding in the last 10 years. That was four years ago and three years ago. They were caused, of course, by, by climate change, but also by, by the impervious surfaces that uh, is surrounding Paris and in Paris. And also the intensive farming that is applied around Paris that we can consider as uh, artificialization. Uh, so, yeah, I would say that challenges are overlapping everywhere in Paris and we have to fight against all of that and even and and I don't even talk about biodiversity which is declining at the same time so that's a kind of simplification of landscape a changing weather a standardization of biodiversity all the challenges are overlapping and um, so that requires a, a strong political response to tackle this which brings me to this other example you were sharing about river restoration because that will solve a lot. I mean, if you are having a wetland, it's solving the, the urban heat because you have some, some green again. It's solving the, the flood problem, of course, and it brings back the biodiversity. But on the other end, it means that you're losing some space, which can be very expensive in the Paris region, I guess. And there's always this tempting solution to say, hey, if I have flood problems, let's build big walls around the river. That's going to solve locally my problem. It's probably going to kill many people in Rouen down the river, but in Paris itself, you, you would be solving it by putting big walls. So I'm just, my question here, I guess, is how do you find the middle point? How do you, you concile opposite interests when it comes to regreening something to restore a river? Um, it's a very tricky question, but I would say it's negotiation between... <laughs> between people, between elected representative. And, and we, we sort of come back to your first question about this opposition between hard engineering and ecological uh, engineering. But uh, you pointed out that uh, one of the reasons we choose nature-based solution is because they are multifunctional. And that when you restore a river, you don't just manage the water and, uh, and the runoff, you also provide a new 
recreation area for for the people. You also provide uh, habitats for for biodiversity, and that's exactly the point of nature-based solution. Whereas when you build a dam or you build a wall uh, or concrete stuff, you just answer one issue. So even if uh, nature-based solution need more space, and that's uh, that's quite true, and and that's one of the parameter about the price and the cost of NBS solution is that we need some space, and and space space can be expensive depending where you are. Uh, so even even about that, uh, they are multifunctional, uh, and the one we, we visited in Sarcel in the north of France, it's in a very dense part of the city where there's a growing lack of green space from people. So reopening this, we have seen on the field when we went there, uh, so many people using it from young people to adult people to remote people that didn't have any place to go. And so that's that's also profitable for, for health and, and well-being of people. How do you measure those benefits? Because it's a, it's a fuzzy benefit. On, on that microphone, we were discussing, again, with Michael Stanley offer a, a study from the University of Michigan, which shows that when you put $1 in river restoration, especially if it's in the city and you're regreening some area, and you add all the outputs, it's going to bring you about $4 in return. So you put $1, you get $4. It sounds like the best investment ever. But the problem is that It's not going from the one's pocket to the other's pocket. It's very diffuse. It's um, less people which have mental health problems because they're in contact with nature. It's uh, less costly consequences the next time there's a flood. It's uh, it's more biodiversity, which means you have less of, of this. I mean, it's, it's a series of, of consequences and, and of events. And it's quite hard to quantify. So how much do you have to zoom out and how do you evaluate the impact of nature-based solutions? That's what uh, most of the, the project on, on nature-based solution try to do, actually, is try to put a value. I, I would say, well, there, there are non-monetary value and, and economic value, but to put a value on those nature-based solution. And I think that the first job is to assess, to quantify, actually, the, those benefits in terms of uh, ecosystem services, in terms of uh, contribution to carbon storage, in terms of uh, water retention, in terms of biodiversity that it can host, in terms of uh, cooling effect and the, the decreasing of, of temperature. And I think by providing this kind of uh, quantification, it will be helpful for the public bodies or, or the private owners to, to invest in nature-based solution. Of course, there are some other economists that expect some monetary value about nature-based solution. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that, that it will help actually to understand the priority of bringing nature back in, in the city. There's been a lot of uh, economic assessment of uh, ecosystem services and, and, and of nature, and I'm not sure it has helped actually to mainstream them into businesses or, or, or into cities. What I, what I feel on the, on the field is that most of the people that are doing or investing in nature-based solution do it because they want it for the people. Uh, they want it at, even for their own image, even because it's fashionable. But it's, it, it, it's always um, the monetary value is not the only one target of nature-based solution. That, that's what I, I feel when I discuss with people. For example, I, I've studied green roof. We went to 40 green roof in, in the Paris region. And most of the green roof we visited, 
haven't been done because uh, you can save money uh, for the, the heating in the building, because you will save some water uh, from runoff. It's been done because it's beautiful. And because of aesthetic reasons, because of recreative reasons, uh, because it's part of the of the fashion of the building. So I think we're getting a little bit out of uh, the monetary indicator only uh, to explore other parts of, uh, of the benefits. It's interesting. I think it's a cool trend, but it's also a dangerous trend because if you can afford to do stuff, then no problem. But as soon as you will have to make some choices and... I think it was David Lloyd Owen on that microphone, and I'm sorry for the name dropping, but <laughs> he wrote a book called Global Water Funding. And in his book, he shows that first, there's a big gap in funding, and especially when you have decisions to take, which is actually the case with the COVID crisis, which will maybe come to an end, and then you have to finance the restart of economies. And then when you have to make some arbitration between a nature-based solution or providing a sanitation for all or making something for the nature and, uh, and hard jobs straight for people, unfortunately, the decision is going to be quite fast and it's not going to be in favor of nature. Even if then you can debate and argue that uh, on the long run, it's the stupidest decision you make. But still, if you're only on the emotional level and only on the almost identity level, well, when it comes to really simple and hard choices, it might push it back on the agenda. Is it a risk that you think will simply disappear because our society have, have changed? Or is it still something that we could be facing in a close future? Yes, of course, this is a risk. And this is what we saw during the COVID crisis. The priority were, were jobs, were employment, were taking care of the people and leave nature away for, for another time. But I, I would say as um, other ecological crises will come in the next month, in the next years, and that's just the beginning of climate change and of biodiversity decline. So if we always reproduce the same pattern, uh, saying that uh, first is the economy and enterprises and business, and then after nature, uh, there will be a point uh, where there will be no more economy because it, it depends of na on nature. Actually, I, I think that we can do both. I mean, we're on a transition uh, towards another economy the economy of limits, the economy of uh, biosphere. And during this transition, we can start to use the current economy incentives and market incentives to orientate our project. For example, on investment, we could have cross-compliance uh, tools to say that if one euro is invested in construction, one euro is invested on, on transportation, it has to be done in an ecological way or with if possible, nature-based solution. That's the, the first transition. Then why not think about another economy where uh, the priority is to maintain the health of ecosystem, the health of nature, to maintain the climate, and then the economy is embedded in this vision. That's actually uh, a different vision of the economy that we have to propage. But uh, waiting for that time, of course, we have to use the economy and the tools of economy, the tax system, the incentives, the investments to foster nature-based solution. I'll keep you on the economic topic, and I'm sorry for that. But quite often in the discussion, nature-based solutions are presented as cheaper than hard engineering solutions. First is that true according to you and second is that a good argument because 
if it's cheaper because of this Veblen effect, you might be tempted to say, well, more expensive is better, uh, like bottled water, which is 100 times more expensive than tap water is probably 100 times better. So that is now my personal benchmark. What's your, your feeling here? Because you, you said some minutes ago that we have to move away from the economic discussion. So would you still be using that argument or is it a dangerous argument? Well, that's, that's also a tricky question for me as an ecologist. I, <laughs> I, I feel like I need to be better in economy, but, uh, but yeah, I'm very interested in, in, in that question. Of course, it's true that NBS are, are cheaper than usual gray infrastructure. There's several literature about that on investment cost as well on management cost. It's, uh, it's cheaper to have, for example, a, a bioswale than pipes and uh, water tanks to treat water, of course. But as I was saying before, we have to take into the account the place that is needed and the surface that is needed for a nature-based solution, which can rise considerably the cost. So that, I think that that's a fact. We can rely on nature and nature be cheaper. About the Veblen effect, I think that it doesn't apply yet for nature-based solutions, uh, which some way are, way are less material than usual consumption products, such as a bottle of water or an apple, for which Veblen actually did its, its, its theory. I think that the problem is mainly cultural about the, the confidence that we have on a nature-based solution. And today, if we don't want to give a dollar or euro for a nature-based solution, or if we don't want to invest in nature-based solution, it's because we fear that it is not efficient. And um, cities are usually more confident about what they know. And what they know is generally technology, generally civil and hard engineering, and they want to pay the price for it. They don't know nature-based solution well, so they don't want to pay for it. So we have to wait for a change in mentality. And then, naturally, I would say that people will go uh, towards nature-based solution. And even if it's cheaper, I think they would apply for it. How, how do you trigger this change in mentality? Because I'm an engineer, so to me, it's very comfortable to think that for whatever problem there is in the world, I can engineer a solution. With nature-based solution, I have to rely on nature to be better than what I can do with an excavator and, uh, and some concrete. So I guess there is a learning curve and a confidence curve to build so that the general population believes that what nature has done for 3.8 million years of R&D is probably better than what a human could be building himself. I'm not sure I can convince everyone and uh, nobody knows where's the truth and the truth is but I would say that I know a lot of engineers from industry from uh, from civil engineering that went to nature knowledge and that uh, that are very interesting about what's happening in nature because if if you look closer at the nature processes the nature of functions you understand that there is a lot of technology in it actually. And there's a lot of engineering. I have a training. My, my training is called ecological engineering. And that means using living organisms such as plants, such as earthworms, for example, uh, and using the environment such as the soil, such as the rocks uh, to build a system and to build something that is working and that uh, 
creates some an advantage and some and some services so i think more and more engineers are understanding that there is engineering in in nature that there is a lot of uh, knowledge we can have some skills and that could make the difference so yeah i teach in an engineering school in paris and i can see that uh, through the years they, they they used to be only engineers in in agronomy with uh, classic agriculture etc uh, but today they're really interested in in ecology and try to understand how they can bring nature into the system and how it can solve problems so i think that this is also a matter of uh, generations, I, I would say, and, and, and new people coming in the market have been raised with this uh, climate change issue, have been raised with this uh, biodiversity decline issue, and are more interested in, in nature. So we have to, to need for that time to come. But that's a message to bring across. So some, there, there must still be a way to bring it across. Because I remember, you know, there was a, a micropollutant regu removal regulation that came into force in, in Switzerland five, six years ago. And they went for ozone and activated carbon to treat the wastewater. And at the time, there were some studies which showed that reed beds would be very effective as well. But when you say that, that reed beds would be very effective, first, there's a belief to build with the people so that they believe that, yes, it's true. But then, you know, the image you have is that water is going to flow, we plant some reeds, and by some magic, micropollutants will be removed. And that is not true at all. You have to have the right sequence of the right plants in the right order with the right soil and with the right current and retention times. And if you do all of that right, and if you do all your ecological engineering right, then, yes, you remove micropollutants. And that message that it's incredibly complicated is very reassuring because it shows you that it's not just, you know, hippie science, which says, hey, nature is going to deal for it. It's, it's serious <laughs> science. And I'm really sorry to make this opposition, which now sounds a bit stupid. So my question here is, how do you bring the message across? What is the key message you have to give to the general population so that they, they start feeling that there's a science behind Actually, I think you, you said it all. It's exactly that. It's, it's uh, convincing people that ecology is not just a dream of some uh, political people and that ecology is not political at the beginning. It's, it's a science of living organism and of the environment. And there's a lot of skills behind and there's potentially a lot of jobs for people, uh, jobs, uh, like you said, on ecological engineering, for example, using plants to treat water, using plants to treat soil, uh, using this knowledge to restore uh, ecosystem. This is actually a boulevard for jobs. So, yeah, my message to people is that um, be interested in, in, in the science of ecology and also that will be an opportunity for you in the next future to, to work on it. And how is it usually received? Do you have harsh feedback or is it always very positive? It's not always very positive. People have always been separated uh, between uh, be between visions and I and I think you can feel that also on the on the on the media and and on the press there there is this uh, kind of separation between people that rely only on technology and on the control of nature and on the power of men over nature always and always and always. And, and, and there are other people that uh, believe that we have to learn from nature. There is this biomimicry field that is growing, I think, and, uh, and, and bringing with it uh, all the people that think that we have to learn on nature and also have less control on that nature. I think that the human beings hate when they don't have control 
over something. And that's the same for nature. They hate the uncertainty. And nature-based solution is all about uncertainty. Of course, we know that it can be efficient for some stuff, but we never know what will happen. But but um, I think this uh, uncertainty is useful in society. If we master, if we control everything, what is the point? I mean, so not everyone will be convinced by that, but I think that there's more and more people interested in, in, in this issue. In Regreen, you have two communication paths one for the adults and one for the children. My rough feeling would be that it must be much easier with children. Is that true? <sighs> I don't know. Both are important. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of true that, uh, that communication to adults, it's, uh, it's much more challenging because as we as we said adults have already been trained uh, they have a background they have a vision they have some uh, concrete ideas so um, i don't believe that people can change a lot in the their vision of, of of society and this is the case for children so of course by using training and, and education we can change it But I, I get back to my previous answer of, um, I, I think this is not only a generation problem, it's also a, a society matter and a, a cultural problem about uh, nature-based solution. We saw it, for example, for green space management in cities. It's, it's very difficult to turn a lawn in a city to a meadow or to a grassland. And it's, uh, it's difficult for old people, for example, uh, which think this is dirty, which think that as soon as there is a flower in the sidewalk, this is dirty. This is because people are not taking care, are not managing the, the, the city. And it's quite different with young people that like actually to see a flower on the sidewalk or to see uh, crazy plants and uh, a kind of wilderness in, in green spaces. So here we see that there is a generation gap between those people. Does that mean that that you shall wait for the, the younger generation to take over? Or is there a more coercive way to solve that, which is probably to come with more regulation? And you're partnering with, with China, which is kind of, it can be a, something to emulate or something to fear because the Chinese approach of regulating it very much and very strong has very impressive results. I mean, sponge cities are really built out of scratch. And when they say that they will reach the target by 2030 or by 2060, I would say I believe them much more than most of the other countries. But is it an extreme approach or is it something to emulate this regulatory approach? I think we've, we have to find a way in between. I mean, too excessive regulation uh, can be bad for democracy or, uh, or for people and, and, and too light regulation, then we never develop the project that, that we want. Uh, so we, we have to find something in between with uh, using the, the market, for example, and, and incentives and education uh, for, for people, but also uh, regulation. Actually, I think we cannot do it without, uh, without regulations. And I know economists hate a little bit the, uh, the regulation and prefer market incentives, but uh, If, for example, if I, if I take the carbon market, it's been years that we rely on, on the carbon market and on the price of carbon to, for its regulation. But have we noticed that the, 
the carbon dioxide have declined in the atmosphere? No, I'm not sure. Uh, so if we don't plan a reduction in carbon emission through regulation, I think it won't work. It won't work. It's, it's, it's my opinion. And it's the same for, for, for ecosystem and nature. If we don't plan protection or restoration into urban policies, into investment, into planning documents, it will remain quite little and not, uh, not grow, actually, as we wanted it. Regarding that, that carbon analogy, I would say that carbon has a very, very strong asset, which nature-based solutions don't have today, is that everybody knows that when you hear climate change, they associate carbon emissions. It, it's really embedded. It's, uh, there's one single thing to measure and it's carbon emissions. And then you can debate if that's the right benchmark or not. But still, that, that's one that, that passed through the general clouds of things that we have around us in terms of information. When it comes to nature-based solution, do you think you can one, one day find such a lighthouse that is going to be the one like biodiversity index or I, I don't know at, at all actually, which one may be a, a right indicator? Well, you, you're completely right. Uh, there's a gap between the, the awareness on, uh, on climate change and, and the one on, on, on biodiversity. And so, so I'm, I'm hoping that one day uh, we'll address both issues at the same consideration. Actually, I think, I think it's, um, it's moving forward. There, there was this IPBES. Uh, so the the equivalent of IPCC for for biodiversity that released a report uh, in 2019, and so that was the first time we addressed globally this issue of biodiversity. And now there will be a new conference overlapping this IPBS report with the IPCC report. So so I think in the next years we'll understand that uh, climate change and biodiversity are the two faces of the same coin and that we have to address them identically uh, actually. So of course in in terms of regulation uh, I, I think we, we we cannot do it tomorrow like this we have we have to wait. There's a big need for knowledge. And, and that's uh, the role of scientists to providing knowledge about biodiversity, understanding why species are declining, where they are declining and why. The same job that we did with, with climate change. And then uh, after that, we could think about uh, regulation. That's kind of interesting when you look at the climate regulation we noticed that some of them could be harmful for biodiversity. For example, I work on uh, nature in the city and uh, with the building industry sometimes, and we noticed that some climate regulation that target the isolation of building and that allows you to make very isolated building, actually they, they're quite harmful for birds, for example, which have no more space to put their nest or, or, or to live in, in the building. It's uh, uh, sometimes the regulation do not allow to green the wall or green the roof, etc. So, um, yeah, we have to understand that uh, those issues must be addressed at the at the same time. So, if tomorrow we make a regulation for climate, this regulation has to be uh, valid for biodiversity as well. So that's another level in the complexity, actually, of the ecology crisis. So that means that you need to have nature as a stakeholder when you're making be it a regulation or be it a, a new project. I mean, just to consider it at some point as a stakeholder, because I wasn't aware of this uh, this issue of green walls or green roofs, which may be forbidden, but it sounds like, you know, um, 
a narrow thinking. When you focus on one thing, maybe the best solution for that very one thing is not to have a green roof. But if you zoom out and you have a system approach, then probably that changes the, the, the position. So I guess, but that's more of a philosophical uh, discussion than, than anything else. What is your horizon with Regreen? What will tell you that you succeeded and, and, and when do you intend to succeed, if you succeed? Um, we have two years to go uh, uh, for, for Regreen. So it was I, a I, your program, you said, so you're three years in? Yes, uh, it's, a, it's a four years program. So we're, we're two years in, uh, two years to go. So we will see. I, I don't know yet. Uh, what I hope is that I talked about this uh, Paris region master plan this one is being updated uh, nowadays, well, in the next uh, four or five years, with this ambition of um, being a regional environmental master plan that integrates the objective of uh, reduction of urban sprawl, but also reduction of uh, carbon footprint and etc. And so I hope that Regreen, the production of Regreen, will be included in this master plan and that we manage to include nature-based solution as a pillar, actually, of the, this, this master plan. I think that the, the problem is that today in planning documents, we see biodiversity only for decoration or for patrimonial uh, history. So when we, we say biodiversity, we think about uh, uh, historical um, natural places, about uh, yeah natural environments, and that we don't decline, we, we don't integrate, sorry, biodiversity into all fields of society, including the, the, the human activities, the cities, etc. And, and I think that that would be the, the, the goal, try to achieve this uh, trans of uh, nature issues, biodiversity issues in, into every part of the local government. And that would be a, a great horizon for us. I've seen that in Regreen, you have a, a work package around business. Who's in charge of that? And, and how, how is it connected to the other work packages? Yes, there's the work package eight uh, about uh, uh, about business. Andreas is running that uh, that work package. So uh, the the goal actually is to uh, there, there are several aspects of this work package. The first one is is to identify what we call the nature based enterprises and, and try to uh, have a kind of uh, directory of businesses that are working on a nature based solution or be able to find those enterprises uh, that are involved in nature based solution. And, uh, help them to develop their activities. Uh, that's um, that's the first part. There's also a part of podcast as the one uh, as we are doing today to, to explain and to show the business actors that there is an interest for uh, for, for nature-based solution. Uh, but actually, in the in the Real Green project, we don't we don't work a lot uh, with enterprises on on the field on nature-based solution. However, I think like, like for jobs, yeah, there's a boulevard for, for job creation. And in the field of ecological engineering, we need so much new enterprises, for example, for supplying seeds, for restoring soils, for supplying plants, uh, for doing the consultancy of the project. We need the enterprises that monitor. So we need material for monitoring of the success of nature-based solution, monitoring the species, for biodiversity, actually, we need so many people working on nature-based solution. And at the moment, 
there are just a few. So they, there's really this uh, this business issue uh, about the business of um, of nature based solution. I also think that uh, uh, we have to be careful about uh, a kind of standardization of uh, nature-based solution into businesses. Um, for example, they, yeah, I feel like they, some suppliers try tend to standardize their, their product. If I get back to this uh, green roof examples, uh, 90% of the green roof in, um, in cities look the same. And for example, in France, they, there's one supplier that has almost 80% of the market. And, and they all look the same, whether you are in Marseille in the south of France or, or Lille in the northern part of France, green roof are the same. And I think that's the wrong direction. Uh, we don't have to make the confusion between a product and a service. And for me, nature-based solution shouldn't be a product that you will find on a catalog uh, and that you will install everywhere for market purpose. Uh, it should be a service that you will design regarding the local context, regarding the people you are working with, regarding the climate condition, the nature condition. And I'm not sure that businesses at the moment are ready for that because is there, if they want to lower their costs, they have to produce at a great scale those kind of, uh, uh, of solutions. So how do we invent a business model that is different from one province to another, that is different from one nature-based solution from another? Otherwise, there will be this risk of uh, standardizing nature everywhere in the same way that we standardize, for example, building and houses that, that used to be very different from one culture to another, and now that tend to resemble everywhere. So that means you have to still a lot to invent, maybe green roof as a service, or who knows? <laughs> but but it's a field of creativity. But it's interesting because it, it's somehow close to what you see in many, many aspects of this blue-green in industry, if I may say so. It's that if you standardize that has some perks but you also commoditizing and commoditizing can have some some caveats as well i'm not opening that box because if i do we we are we have to restart for one hour of deep dive <laughs> <laughs> i propose you to switch to uh, the rapid fire questions it's time for the rapid fire questions in that last section, I try to keep the questions short and I'm not cutting the microphone, but the goal is for you to have also short answers. My first question is, what is the most exciting project you've been working on and why? <laughs> there are many of them. Uh, I would say that um, we're working at the moment on a, a depaving potential project. And it's, it's so exciting to think that there's a huge potential in cities for removing concrete, depaving impervious surfaces such as uh, oversized car parks, schools, building yards, unused public spaces. Uh, so I really believe in, in this project, show that there is a great potential in cities for, for regreening. And I would love to make it happen in one place and... Uh, and go with, with my hammer and, 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 and destroy some concrete to plant some trees. <laughs> so you say in one place, you have one specific place in mind or? For the moment, we, we look at the potential by mapping. So actually, it's a, we work on the computer and we map. And then we want to go on the field and find some specific place. 
but uh, there's a lot of barrier. Uh, it, it can be very expensive. It's hard to find a place because uh, we need to find a known owner that is agree and etc. etc. So th- that's quite of a fight, but uh, we will find it. What's your favorite part of your current job? Um, my favorite part is uh, every part. I, I, I would say that uh, every day is a new one with this job. There's no routine actually. And that's what I like uh, with, my, with my job. I'm working on several projects that can go from research to teaching to expertise. I can work uh, in the office and on the field. I can travel. That's what I like in, in, in my job. It's, it's never the same. What is the trend to watch out for in the water industry? The trend, uh, well, for, for my point of view, I would say, and we were talking about that, I think that there's a, there's a huge potential of uh, phytodepuration of wastewater. I would love to see that uh, even more. And I think that that's a trend in countries such as Germany, such as uh, uh, Switzerland, for example, but not yet in, in France. And uh, I'm very interested in that uh, possibility of plant treating water. And as you said, it's very complex. So we have to be careful what kind of plant we use, how we design the, uh, the, the, the model. But that's, that's a huge opportunity to create wetlands in urban areas. And I really love the complexity of that kind of system. Uh, so well, it, it's trendy for me. At least. Well, uh, I think it's really trendy. There are many places in the world. You've cited some, but uh, I would add Australia, for instance, to the pot, which is quite working into that direction. But there's, I would guess, uh, a link to to the space you have, which is a bit more prevalent in Australia than it is maybe in in the Paris region. But nevertheless, for for sure, there there's much to do. And beside, I mean, it's everything we, we discussed in the in the past hour. So beside just the, the treatment of wastewater, you have welcome side effects. You have green spaces, you have biodiversity, you have many additional stuff. What is the thing you care about the most when you're working on a new project? And what is the one you care the least? Well, I would say when I work on a project, I want to make sure that it has an utility for people (laughs) or at least for a current society issue. That's what we call applied research. Actually, that's uh, we're somewhere in between the scientific research we work with them, we read the article, and between uh, society, where we try to provide them the knowledge from the scientists to the field and to translate it into, into something very concrete. So that's what I, I, I care about. We have to answer society issues, and I think that biodiversity is a society issue. Uh, the least, uh, maybe the way uh, the politics are, are using it, Ecology. Well, actually, I care about that, but I don't care about the different kind of discourse uh, around ecology. And I, and I like to keep on the technical point of view and on the evidence and on the facts. And I think that's a really great political power, actually, to keep on the facts, to keep on the scientific evidence, to build your uh, political strategy. Do you have sources to recommend? How do you? keep up with the, with the trends? My first source is actually uh, scientific literature and uh, an, an article. So, uh, and, and I think that we, there's actually a gap t- today between uh, articles that are written in, in literature, in scientific reviews and the society. And there's something to do to uh, vulgarize and to translate 
this scientific research into something re readable for 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 the people. Uh, and most of the, the the issues that we address now, uh, they are answered actually in scientific articles, but nobody knows them. Who would like to read a, a PhD? I mean, it's uh, it's one thousand pages of uh, so so we we there's something missing in between to translate this work into something accessible for uh, for the people. Is it what you aim to do with uh, the podcast you were mentioning earlier? Yeah, pr probably. Yes, yes. It's uh, it's trying to to synthesize the the scientific research and scientific background to to people. Yeah, it's part of the job. And my last question is, would you have someone to recommend me that I should definitely have on that microphone as soon as possible? Well, uh, many people potentially, uh, but uh, as we were talking about uh, uh, yeah, nature-based solution and, and water in particular, uh, and those examples I gave you, uh, this one of Gones, a new wetland created for, for water mitigation, I would definitely recommend you to invite Eric Chanal, Uh, which is the director of this uh, that we can call syndicate for hydraulic management uh, in the city of uh, of Gonesse and other cities in the north of Paris. He's in charge of uh, river restoration and uh, and wetland creation, and um, I think he's the kind of guy that has understood the importance of nature, the importance to work along with ecologists and hydrologists and uh, and different kind of people. And also uh, a guy that remain very pragmatic and very engineer about the efforts that need to be done when considering this kind of ecological engineering uh, and also the time it takes to uh, make people accept this kind of project, the time it takes to, to do the management. Uh, so he's really a guy that uh, I would love to hear on your podcast. Well, that sounds like an awesome recommendation. So thanks a lot. Well, Mark, it's been... It's been a pleasure. I think I'd be very interested to have you again here when your Brewing project comes to an end to see uh, what would be your conclusions uh, at the end of all of that and uh, and what's next, because I guess uh, it's never the end of the road. If it's the end of the road, it's it's quite kind of sad and, and boring. So uh, you're welcome back whenever you want. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, I had a lot of pleasure discussing and I, I, I would come back whenever you want. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Don't Waste Water. This podcast was brought to you by GF Piping Systems. Loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time.